Now, in this passage, we have really the cry of our Lord's heart that we would be those that go out and seek to save others, to bring them to Christ. To say with the woman at the well, could this be the Christ? Why don't you come and see? Let him convince you. But I think that as Christians, there must be found within each one of us this great desire to reach others. John Chrysostom was a great preacher who was one of the early church fathers. And he said this, it deeply arrested my heart today when I read it. He said, nothing is more useless than a Christian who does not try to save others. He went on to say, I cannot believe in the salvation of anyone who does not work for his fellow man's salvation. I mean, if you have been so graced by God and blessed by God, and you have no desire to reach out to others and bring them into what you have found, then I have to question that you found what Jesus really brings. Piercing thoughts. J.C. Ryle, who is one of my favorite authors and throughout my studies over the years, I like him more and more and more and more. He said that a man's Christianity may well be suspected when he is content to go to heaven alone. This passage in front of us does not allow us to think like that. And there is a sense in which the disciples present in Samaria as Jesus is ministering, there's a sense in which they were there content to go to town and buy groceries and walk past all of these lost people and maybe even be settled and content in their Jewish prejudice against the Samaritans and not even be remotely concerned about the condition of their souls. And Jesus is trying to awaken them to the reality that there's nothing more important in life than the very thing he was doing at the well. So here in front of us in this passage is the realization of the highest goal in life, which we find in Jesus' statement in verse 34, when he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. He saw himself as a sent one from the Father with a very distinct goal in life to finish the work he was sent to do, and nothing thrilled him more than that. Then in this passage, secondly, there is the motivation for the highest cause, which is the Great Commission, and we just began to get into that last time. And finally, as we come down to the miracle of healing the nobleman's son, we have the cultivation of the highest faith. So the realization of the highest goal, the motivation for the highest cause, and the cultivation of the highest faith, there are some real high points in this chapter. But having looked at the realization of the highest goal and just begun before we finished last time, we just began to get into the motivation for the highest cause. I want to read over verses uh, 35 down through 38, and we've read the rest down to the end, but I want to focus again on verses 35 to 38, where Jesus says, Do you not say there are still four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields. They're already white for harvest, no doubt pointing out the Samaritans and their white garments coming down the hill towards the well following this woman, saying, here's the harvest right here. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. 
For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. Now, lest I forget to comment on that, I want to do it right now. Here is the fact in the context that, as he says here in verse 38, I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. John the Baptist, prophets of the Old Testament said, of the Old Testament had ministered and plowed the ground here in Samaria previously. And now they're entering into that previous labor and it's time to really call these people to Christ. But what I want to point out in verse 37 before we go on is this. One sows and other reaps so that in this whole matter of the greatest of all causes, the highest of all causes, there's going to be a lot of sowing at times for some of us and we're not going to be the one who is reaping all the time. There is a good deal of sowing that must go on even without seeing reaping. I mean, think of all the sowing Jeremiah the prophet did and he never saw one convert. But he was sowing and sowing and sowing. And certainly they were entering into his labors. So then there are those who reap. One sows another reaps. And I think we tend sometimes in the kingdom of God to give an undue bit of importance and glory to those who reap. When in reality, there must be the sowing to be the reaping. And Jesus puts an equal emphasis on both. And both will receive wages in heaven. So I want to encourage you, don't be discouraged if you're out sowing and sowing and sowing. And God doesn't particularly grace you with a lot of reaping and reaping and reaping. Have you ever felt like a failure in the Christian life because you sow and sow, but you're not the one who prays the, quote, sinner's prayer to lead someone to Christ? I want to say this up front because, you know, with a heavy emphasis in this passage to get out and share the word, I know some of you are thinking already, well, you know, I've done that and I just haven't, I haven't been that effective. Maybe I've prayed with five people in my Christian life to receive Christ. Some of you, if I didn't explain this right, would probably come up afterwards tonight weeping and say, I've never prayed with someone to receive Christ. Does that mean that I'm up in the John Chrysostom quote section that you read in the beginning of the message? A despicable type character, nothing more useless. No, there's sowing and there's reaping. Please understand that. And both are important and both are a major part of bringing the full harvest into the kingdom of God. Now, all of these verses here point back to verse 35, where Jesus says, Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. It is a great thing to have a good high cause in your life, isn't it? It is a great thing to know that you're spending your life for something that really counts. And it is a great thing to even find yourself exhausted in that cause. How many here are interested in football at one time or another? What's this all about? Like, is it all right, you know? I suppose that because I'm the kind of pastor who every other sermon isn't full of illustrations like, you know, it's kind of like the quarterback on a football team. You know those? I went through high school, my principal, every other illustration was, you know, it's kind of like the quarterback on a football team. Well, because I'm not like that, because, you know, football's not my whole life, 
And I never even know when the Super Bowl is, except that your behavior is a little odd on those days. <laughs> but I was drawn to something that Vince Lombardi once said. You know him as the Green Bay Packers coach that led his team to five NFL championships and two Super Bowl victories. And I only know that because I read it somewhere. But, you know, he had something very interesting to say. He said, the quality of a man's life is in direct proportion to his commitment to excellence, regardless of his chosen field or endeavor. I firmly believe, he said, that a man's finest hour, his greatest fulfillment to all he holds dear, is that moment when he has worked his heart out in a good cause and he lies exhausted on the field of battle victorious. I like that. And certainly he applied that philosophy to football and did well at it. But how much more the good cause we're discussing here. To be exhausted on the field of battle to me is a great thing. Now, I told you there's five motivations I wanted to talk to you about for this highest cause. And the first one is that we are under marching orders. In John 20, verse 21, Jesus said, Peace be with you as the Father sent me. I am now sending you. We have marching orders. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. So the question is not whether or not you should go out and preach the gospel. That's not the question. The question is, where should you go? That's the question in your life. It isn't whether or not you should. If you're a Christian, you should, and you're commanded, you have marching orders. The question is, where do I do it? That's the question. So we are under marching orders. Jesus said in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Some of you will labor in, Ju in Jerusalem your whole life long sowing the seed. That's your own backyard. Some of you will go out farther and farther and farther till you find yourselves at the ends of the earth. And that is a wonderful thing. But the marching orders are there. So let's go on to a second motivation for this highest cause, the Great Commission. And that is this. Men and women are lost without Jesus. They are lost. Jesus said, look at the fields. They're white for the harvest. Take a look at the faces of these Samaritan people coming down here toward us. They're lost. They're lost eternally and they're lost now. And I wonder how much our hearts ache about that. William Booth used to say, go for souls and go for the worst. He said, some men's passion is for gold. Some men's passion is for art. Some men's passion is for fame, he said, but my passion is for lost souls. Why? Because he understood the misery. You have to remember the misery. Even if you have to sit and remind yourself of what it was like, it can get so good in the Christian life that you forget what it was like. I forget often what it was like. I have to sit and think about how bad it really was. And then I remember and I go back out and I want to reach people that are lost like I was. I'll never forget the, the ache that was in my own heart for the truth. I was lost. Now, I grew up in Christian churches, quote, Christian churches, all kinds of Christian churches, denominational churches. By the time I was 
19 years old, I did not know the Lord. Whatever had happened to me in some Sunday school room over here or somewhere over here in some Lutheran church that I went to or the Presbyterian church that I went to or the Bible church I went to or the Baptist church I went to, whatever happened in any one of those churches, when I was 19, I did not know Christ. But I'll tell you something, I wanted to know God. And I began to search down every avenue I could find. I was lost. We must remember what it's like to be lost. You ever read the account of David Brainerd, his writings, diary or anything? David Brainerd was a missionary here in America to the Indians. The guy was amazing. And if you read his diary, you find this man, two things about him. One, this holy passion for God that is unparalleled. And after his life and his writings, missionaries have taken his writings to the ends of the earth and taken his life as an example of a holy passion for God. But another thing you find, along with that holy passion for God, is this holy passion to see lost people saved. David Brainerd lived his life for that. He once wrote, I cared not where or how I lived or what hardships I went through so that I could but gain souls to Christ. Didn't care where I lived, didn't care how I lived, didn't care how hard it was there. The only thing that mattered to me, he wrote, was winning souls to Christ. That's what he lived for. This is what Jesus is breathing into the hearts of his disciples here. In Ephesians chapter 2.12, I'll just read it to you. Chapter 2 verse 12. Paul says, at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. What a way to exist. You remember what that was like? Having no hope and without God in the world. I remember leaning over my grandfather's open casket, 12 years old, 1964. And he died, 80-some years old. And I looked into his open casket and my whole mind just went into a swirl because I did not know where he went or what had happened to him. Without hope, without hope in the world, he was a German Jew and he died without Christ. I now know where he went. Much as you don't like to face it, you face the truth. And you seek to live your life in such a way that you can make that something that doesn't happen to everyone that you meet and everyone that you love. Jeremiah 50, verse 6, Jeremiah wrote of men as lost sheep. Jesus was always discipling his followers into this reality that men are lost. They're just aimlessly going through this world. And with that lostness, there is a lifetime of pain and guilt failures and mistakes and you don't understand how to cope with them. You don't know how to lift the burden of your guilt. You know, an alcoholic has been described as a man who is trying to leap from a burning building. His whole mind is on fire with guilt and all and so he tries to drown himself in the alcohol to escape it. Drug addicts are like that. And then of course the vicious cycle is that you get addicted to that very substance and it only gets worse and compounds. You see, you're lost. You don't know what to do. You don't know where to go. You don't know where to reach out. Jesus spoke to his followers in such a way as 
You know the way. Go reach those lost people. Bring them out of the darkness into the light, into the joy and love and peace and fulfillment and light that you have found. Could you turn in your Bible to Luke to chapter 15 to verse 3? In Luke chapter 15, Jesus just pounds this issue of lostness. It's almost as though once he gets going saying they're lost, he can't stop saying it. In Luke 15, verse 3, it says, So he spoke this parable to them, saying, And what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which was lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was what? Lost. He says, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 just persons who need no repentance. And now that he gets going, he keeps on going. He goes to the parable of the lost coin. Look at verse 8. He says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I, what? Lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I like that wording. There is joy in the presence of the angels. You know, we always look at that as though when one sinner repents, that the angels break out into a party. And I'm not saying that they don't, but perhaps you've never looked at it this way. It says there is joy in the presence of the angels. You know what that signifies? The one that breaks out with the joy is the Lord. And so when one sinner repents and all the angels are watching God, all of a sudden they see God break out in this immense joy and then they join in with Him. It is a tremendous thought. There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And the joy breaks forth from God into their presence. Eight times in this chapter, the lostness of man is emphasized. And each time, with the great joy on the part of God, when one lost soul is brought back to him, God loves man so much. Jesus goes on to tell the story, you know, here of the lost son, the prodigal son. And in this parable, there's a great emphasis on what God wants to do immediately after the lost person repents. The lost person is found. They come to God. And that's something we need to hold in our minds. I think sometimes we look at these people that are lost and they're deep in sin and they're living this terrible lifestyle and we're looking at it like it's our challenge. Like, I'm going to witness to this person, but now, what happens if they pray with me or something and they don't change? May I say, that is really, in the final sense, that is not your problem. Your business is to sow the seed. 
Your business is to get out there and seek to sow and reap. It is God's business and, may I say, specialty to come into a life and upon the prayer that is sincere and connects with Him to come in and radically transform that life. Will you please understand that's not your job. You are not Mr. Holy Spirit. Will you understand you don't have to be Mrs. Holy Spirit on the job changing lives for Jesus. No, it's His job. And Jesus loves to talk about the great change that happens immediately after that person comes to know him personally. He brings us out in Luke 15, 22. The prodigal son, you know, comes back to the father and he's coming in repentance and he's been out there lost in sin. And what the father sees it as is that he had a son and lost his son. That's what he sees it as. And the father said to the servants in verse 22, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Dress this guy up. Take off those smelly, stinky clothes. He's been living with pigs. He's been eating pig food. Take off all those old rags. Dress him up really nice. He's going to a party. So they bring it out and they get him all set up. And they bring the fatted calf in verse 23 and they kill it. And he says, let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. They began to be merry. One of the things that I like to keep in my mind is how happy people are going to become once they come to know Jesus Christ. How God is going to change their life. How He's going to lift the dirt and the filth and the stench off of their life. How He's going to cleanse their own view of them, themselves, which is often a, a stench in and of itself. Most of the people that I have met and talked to that have come to Christ basically could not stand their own existence before they came to Him. Would you agree with that? I mean, you get to the point where you hate your sin and you hate yourself because you're so cheap and sinful, right? So that you come, and to me the joy is to know that God is going to cleanse that life, God is going to cleanse that mind, and God is going to change that person's perception of themselves as they come to understand how precious they are to Him, how much He loves them, as He puts on the new robe, as He puts on the ring, as He puts on the new sandals, and as He takes them into the rejoicing that is theirs now in Christ, it has a way of changing the way that you look at yourself. We'll tell you what, you can be suicidal one hour and come to pray and give your guilt to Christ and let Him cleanse you within and you have every reason to live for the rest of your life because now you've found the way, the truth, and the life. You're not lost anymore. It's the life of God. There's a wonderful thing to contemplate how much God wants to do immediately after someone comes to know Him. So this is a great motivation, the lostness of man. There's another motivation I want to bring forth to your thinking, and that is the physical and social needs of large portions of human beings. I don't know if you've thought about this before. One of the reasons that we stress missionary trips in this church, going on a missionary trip to a third world country, is because there's something shocking about it. I remember hearing Greg Laurie tell about his first trip to the Philippines, and he was on this airplane with Raul Reese. 
And uh, they came in and they were in this plane and it wasn't even a normal plane they were landing on this island and it was a military plane. Somehow they'd gotten into that and they're, they're coming down into the runway. And you know, the Philippines, it's always unstable, lots of communist activity and all this. And Greg said, we're coming in just over the runway, coming down in and we could see soldiers lined up and down everywhere with machine guns. And you know, Greg's kind of afraid of stuff like that. And so he said, I, I was getting really nervous and I turned to Ro and I said, I can't believe it, there's soldiers with machine guns and, and everything. And, he, and Ro goes like this, I know man, it's neat, it's just like Vietnam. <laughs> that has nothing to do with my point but it's kind of a neat story anyway they landed and, and Greg told about how he was appalled shocked at the conditions of this country then we went there I went there myself and I'll tell you it is so shocking to see the filth and the dirt and the, the poverty that people live in it just wrenches your heart out. And there's something about leading people to Christ and knowing that God is going to take care of them. That He will feed them and He will clothe them. And there's something about caring about that. You see Jesus, He cares for the sick, He cares for the poor, He cares for the needy. You see His compassion on their infirmities. He's not afraid to touch a leper. Nobody would touch a leper in those days, but he sat down with sinners. He touched the lepers. He, he went to these places with Matthew when he had the worst sinners in town. You see, Jesus cared about the social and the physical needs of people. Now, granted, it is not our first and foremost motivation. What would it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lost his own soul? So, that isn't my point. My point is that as a secondary benefit to coming to know the Lord, you come under the care of God. And it changes your life. Now, that means that in certain situations, you're going to have to get yourself dirty. You might be sitting here thinking right now, are you kidding? Get myself dirty? I can't imagine mud on my hands. I can't imagine dirt on my shoes. I cannot imagine myself touching a filthy child. Listen, you go to a third world country and you get in the line with the volunteer dentist who comes along or the volunteer doctor and you'll stand in a line, stand there all day long as little children come up and they've got worms crawling out of their nose and out of sores on their body and they've got rotten teeth and they're standing there looking up to you and you're there because of Christ. And I'll tell you, it changes your life. It changes your life. To me, it is a great motivation to realize that large portions of human beings live in social poverty and physical poverty and difficulty, and Christ can bring great, great comfort into that situation. You know, Franklin Graham, Billy Graham's son, has built an entire ministry, missionary ministry, called Samaritan's Purse, based on this exact concept. What he does is he finds impossible situations. And he comes in there with truckloads of stuff. And he starts caring for physical needs of the people. And at the same time, he starts telling them about Christ. And they realize, you know, no one's ever come in and cared for us like this before. Why are you here? Well, it's because of Jesus Christ. It's a very important motivation. To me, it's a big one.
It comes down to this. You come to know Jesus and you you have your heart cleansed. Your heart is softened. It's filled with love. And suddenly you begin to care for your fellow human being. It's a very, very wonderful thing. And it's an important thing to be motivated by that. Will you get dirty? You might. But you know what? Nothing in all of life like someone who's willing to get dirty to see a soul get clean. I read about a time when the great musician Johann Sebastian Bach was first called to the San Suci Palace or Susi Palace in Potsdam by King Frederick the Great. He decided upon his arrival that he should first freshen himself up from his journey, long journey, and he was all dusty and dirty. And Instead, the king commanded an instant appearance, and Bach therefore arrived in the palace dirty and improperly attired. Some of the courtiers with their court manners and habits laughed at Bach's appearance, but the king instantly chided them for their insensitive contempt, and he had Bach play, and they began to enjoy his wonderful music. Later, Count Zizendorf, who was a Christian and knew the story, applied it to Christianity and Christian workers, saying this, Nothing is more beautiful than a dusty warrior. And he was right. Nothing is more beautiful than a dusty warrior for Christ. Someone who's willing to roll up their sleeves, deny their self, pick up their cross, and maybe go somewhere they would have never considered before they came to Christ. You see, the doctor who renounces his great opulent lifestyle and goes to the mission field to get his hands dirty that souls might become clean. So many wonderful testimonies like this. It's a great motivation. Let me give you a fourth motivation, and that is simply the love of Christ. The love of Christ. Second Corinthians. Could you turn to Second Corinthians 5.14? Let's look at this together just for a moment. John tells us, you know, that God so loved the world that He sent His Son. Jesus says, My meat is to do the will of the Father and finish the work He has sent me to do. He was constrained and compelled by the love of God. And here is Paul under that same constraint. He says in 2 Corinthians 5.14, For the love of Christ compels us or constrains us or drives us forward because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all. That those who live, notice, should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. I want to say something to you. If you're one of these people who's always bummed out, if you're one of these people who can never get your eyes off your own hang-ups, if you're one of these people who goes around joyless in the Christian life because you're so far from perfect now, here is one of the greatest cures you'll ever find in the Bible for your condition. Now listen, you can go sit on the couch of your analyst and pour out your heart and your childhood and all of this. When you get done, you can pay them 120 bucks for the 20 minutes. And they can tell you you're complex. And then they can say, so you're going to have to come back next time so we can talk more about your complex. Now that I've told you what you are and they tell you you're complex, you just come back next time, pay me a little more money and we'll talk more about it. And then we're going to talk about in the future how you can live with this complex and just accept yourself as you are. 
and blame everyone else for the fact that you're the way you are. You know, and you pay a lot of money for this kind of thing. Now, you can go on through life all stuck on yourself. Or you can get out of yourself and off of yourself and you can go with Paul the Apostle who said the love of Christ compels us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all. Why? That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. And in living for him, he says, as the Father has sent me, I now send you. You go out and do what I have done. If you want a cure for your self-absorption, take this as a lifetime verse and get out of yourself and start looking toward others and meeting their needs as a Christian in the context of John 4 is to do it. And you're going to find you're going to run out of time to sit around and think about yourself. And you're going to have so many others on your minds and you're going to come across needs that are so vastly bigger and problems that are so vastly greater than yours that the perspective is going to change your life. It is a wonderful thing to be constrained by the love of Christ. It is a great motivation for the highest of all causes. Let me give you a fifth motivation. And that is the opportunities of our day. Do you understand the time we're living in? The opportunities are immense. The harvest is great. The laborers are few. And among all that call themselves Christians in the world, you are one. What kind of a Christian are you? Are you one of those that is the few that goes out into the great harvest and does all you can? Or are you one of those that does nothing and that's why there are so few? What kind are you? Are you one on the sidelines? Or are you one rolling up your sleeves and getting in there and making it happen? There are so many opportunities. There are with, they are without number. One of the things that you come back from the mission field with, a short-term missionary trip or a long one, is that there are so many needs. You could live a thousand lifetimes and never meet them all. So you learn to minister according to need according to need in this sense, that their need is so great out there, the opportunities are so many, and then from there you refine it to ministering out of obedience to the need that is there because you cannot minister to all the needs that are there. And it's this kind of understanding that literally sucks people out to the mission field and keeps them there. And they live their whole life to see others come to know Jesus Christ the opportunities of our day are so great. You can just jump out there and Jesus will point you in the right direction. In Proverbs 10.4 it says, He who has a slack hand becomes poor, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a wise son, but he who sleeps in the harvest is a son who causes shame. May God help us to not be those who are content to sleep in the harvest. I remember a time in my life, it was right before the time I became born again, when I slept till 2 o'clock in the afternoon every day. Then I would wake up and prowl around all night. And then sleep till 2 in the afternoon every day. And sometimes I'd sleep in. You know, maybe 6 o'clock at night. 
He who sleeps in the harvest is a son who causes shame. I remember at that point, one day my dad came in. I was just living with my dad at the time. And he came in, it was about 2 o'clock, and he was out working all day. And came in all dirty. And he said, are you going to sleep your life away? I've been up since 4 o'clock this morning. I've been up since 4 o'clock every day of my life working for you provide for you. Pulling on my socks when I was throwing up with flu in the morning to go to work even though I didn't feel like it because I had a son to provide for you. And he said, where would my life be if I slept at 2 o'clock every day? And he just kind of talked to me like that and then he left. And I sat there and I thought, you know, I am a son who's causing shame to my father. Do you realize how many Christians are in the kingdom like that? They sleep in, they do this, they do that, but basically they do not much. The opportunities of our day should be a massive, massive motivation to our hearts. And you know, it's kind of like just getting going is so good. Like, you know how when you're just getting going on a diet? Anybody here ever been on a diet? No. Well, I have. And you know, when you just get going on a diet your mind feels better. It's like the time I was with Bob Grenier on a missionary trip. Pastor Bob Grenier, he didn't mind if I tell this. He has no choice. He's not here. But I remember he came walking into this hotel room and he goes by the mirror and he goes, yeah, mm -hmm. you know, I've been dieting for two days now. He said, I think I'm down about 15 ounces. I said, I think you're deceived, man. You know, and eating some fries and tacos. I was just having a grand old time. But you see, his mind felt better. You know how when you get back to the gym and you go in there and you huff and puff and sweat or you're back out jogging? You know how you just feel better because you did it? You're doing something about the problem. Let me say this. In the Christian life, just to get out and start surveying all the opportunities, whether it's inside the walls of your church or outside the outreach of your church, whatever, to survey the opportunities and just pitch in, you feel so much better immediately. Immediately. Ask anybody who's doing it, and they'll tell you that. Listen to this. A great man of God once said this, The evangelistic harvest is always urgent. The destiny of men and of nations is always being decided. Every generation is strategic. We are not responsible for the past generation, and we cannot bear full responsibility for the next one. But we do have our generation. And he said, God will hold us responsible to how well we fulfill our responsibility to this age and to how well we take advantage of our opportunities. You know who it was that said that? Billy Graham. What an example of someone who is willing to get out there and do it. And if you talk to those that know Billy, they will tell you that his personal feeling right now in life is that he wishes he could have reached more people for Jesus. <laughs> that just bowls me over. I just wish I could have done more. You know, it's just, <laughs> and you just want to crawl away, you know, and think, well, I don't think I've done hardly anything by comparison. Here's a guy who wishes he could have done more. So those words become so pressing. It's always urgent. 
There's an incident in the book of Acts that is often on my heart and a great source of motivation to me. Could you turn to the book of Acts to chapter 16 to verse 9? Acts 16, 9. Paul went out on a missionary journey. He's marching across Asia Minor. And everywhere he went, the Holy Spirit stopped him or he was hindered in some way. So he just kept moving. He's waiting for that place where he could stop and revival would break out like it had so many times. He's wondering what's going on. He just kept moving. God was steering him in the right direction. It's a classic example of what I've told you so many times. Just get moving and God will steer you. So here he is. He's out there and he's perplexed because this is not like his previous journeys. And finally he gets to the ocean. He can't go any farther. And they're camped on the ocean. And it must have been one of the biggest trials of his life. And then this happens. In verse 9 of Acts 16, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and, notice, pleaded. Pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. I don't think that was the only thing he said, and then boom, he vanished. He appeared to Paul in this vision, and he began to plead with him about the need in Macedonia. By the time it was all over, Paul was ready to go to Macedonia. When he got to Macedonia, he went to Philippi, which was there. Nothing really happened until he got down by the riverside, and there was a small group of women meeting there together one by the name of Lydia, whose heart the Bible said the Lord had opened. I love that. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but the man from Macedonia turned out to be a woman. It was Lydia down by the riverside. I'm just kidding, but here's the issue. It's, it seems to me that what he saw in that vision was an angel. In other words, as he was sensitive to the closed doors, the hindrance, the Holy Spirit forbidding him to go here, to go there, he just keeps moving, going, well, God must be in this, and he's going to show us. So he kept moving. Finally, what it seems to be an angel, probably dressed up in the outfit of a Macedonian, he shows up and pleads with Paul to come over to Macedonia. Well, you know, it had to be an angel. Because no man in Macedonia could have just traveled over across the ocean there and appeared to Paul. We can't do that as human beings. So you understand, it had to be some kind of a thing like an angel. But here's the point. He pleaded. And I think that sometimes that's what it takes to reach the depths of our hearts to get us to move and to respond. It takes a pleading upon our souls. Jesus is here at the well with the woman. He has led to salvation. She's gone. She's bringing many others back who are coming to salvation. And here are his disciples. And in the midst of all of this, all they have on their mind is eating. And he is trying to get down into their hearts and say, look, you know, we're just getting going. But before we go much farther, please get the idea that there is a cause here. It is the highest cause of all in life. 
it is that men are lost and we are sent to reach them. Please do all that you can do to reach them and let this become the main goal, the main cause upon your life and your mind that's going to influence what you do with the rest of your life. The harvest is already white, he said to them. The man pleaded with Paul to come to Macedonia and help them. And when he went and he got there, he ministered to a few. The group grew and then it grew so much. The activity got so great. He was arrested. He was thrown in jail. The jailer came to Christ. His household came to Christ. By the time he left Philippi, there was a thriving ministry there. And it was there in a place where it had not been before because here was a man who responded to the opportunities that were out there. And once he got moving, God guided him to just the right place. Five powerful, important motivations for the highest cause of all. So, we understand what the highest goal is, right? That's God's will for my life. I am a sent one. You might be a nurse. You might be a computer worker. You might be a word processor. You might be a secretary. You might be someone who works in a gas station. You might be someone who works in a market. If you know Christ, you're a sent one. You've been sent to make a difference in the lives of those who don't know the way out. And God has shown you the way out so you can show them the way out. You've been sent to not go to heaven alone, but to take many others with you. Some of you will throw the seed. Some of you will harvest. But all of us will sow and harvest and reap together. And when we get to heaven, we're going to find out what an impact we had. And we're going to be glad we spent our lives for the highest cause of all. Well, that leaves a third main thought in our outline, which will then have to become a third message. So <laughs> we'll stop here. I really want us to pray through these things as a church, as a church family, as individual Christians, and to let God speak to us what this means to us as individuals, and to hear what the Spirit is saying to us as a church and to make sure that when it's all said and done, we have done the work that he wanted us to do while we were here. And once we understand who we are, what we're called to do, and what it's like to do it, yes, you'll get dirty at times. Yes, it will be hard at times. Yes, there will be trials. Yes, there will be buffetings from the devil like you never dreamed could come upon your life. But there is no greater life than this. And the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the amazing thing is that the hardship kind of goes into a blur. And the goodness of God in the midst of it all becomes the great thrill of your life. And you become so addicted to God's work that you could not be pried loose, even with the strongest tactics of the devil. You have a great work to do, and it's a great joy to be at it. Well, let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you, Lord, that... We can be part of a church family. Thank you that we can have friends and fellowship one another. Thank you, Lord, that you have blessed us with all blessings in the heavenly places with you. But Father, help us. God, help us to remember there are human beings, human beings like us that live day in and day out burdened with guilt, burdened with sorrow, burdened because they don't know the way out and have no hope alienated from you. God, 
Help us to go after them. Show us the way to go. Show us what our job is as an individual Christian and as a church. And Lord, we will be careful to give you all the glory. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.